All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, please open up to 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, not 2 Corinthians. Um, have your Bible at the ready. We're going to bounce around a little bit today. <laughs> I was just trying to say. The, uh, the past uh, couple of weeks, I've noticed that we've had some really beautiful sunsets and some really beautiful moons in the evening. And I sat one evening watching the moon come up over the horizon, you know, when it's down close to the earth, it looks so big. Just thinking to myself how God gave us this picture of beauty that really doesn't do anything practically good for us. It just is beautiful. It just is wonderful to look at. And it gives us a sense and awe and wonder of what he can accomplish, of what God can do as a, as a God. We sometimes, I think, get so wrapped up in what is practical and what is useful and what has utility that we forget to, to remember that there's value in form, that sometimes we, we can see great blessing in enjoying the beauty of what God has made and in enjoying the beauty of what God himself is. And so this series that we're doing here in the month of December about the hypostatic union is celebrating what God is, particularly who God the Son is. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine nature of God the Son with a human nature that came about at the time of the Advent. And as we go through this series, I'll remind you that we have three uh, simple goals that we want to accomplish in the preaching. To bring greater clarity to our understanding of this complex doctrine so that we might wrap our finite brains around this infinite and wonderful and joyous God. Secondly, to safeguard our minds and our hearts against heretical misunderstandings of Jesus. We don't want to come here and praise Christ, but have a completely wrong picture of who Christ is in our minds, in our hearts. And so we pray that the preaching will refine what we understand of Jesus and what we believe of him. And thirdly, that it might increase our love and worship of the Savior, that our doxology to him, our praise to him might be stronger, that our times of prayer uh, might be sought more passionately because we love this God who is so great he is not a, a small God. He is not a God who is easy to understand. He's complex and rich in truth and in love. And we want to worship him all the better. We do that by magnifying him well. And when we magnify him well, we enjoy him even more. So last week, Scripture showed us that the Savior of mankind had to himself be a man. We talked about the necessity of physical blood being shed for sins to be atoned for. We talked about how sin at its spiritual core, is spiritual at its core, but it produces material consequences. And because of this, the Savior has to exist in a material way. God the, uh, the Son existed previously before His incarnation for all time. He existed in a spiritual form. But when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was born into a material existence. So the Savior has to exist on a material level. Of course, the material of the blood sacrifice being offered has to coincide with the creature being saved. And so the blood of goats and sheep served as a marker, as a shadow and a type that pointed forward to what Christ would do on the cross. But the blood of a man was necessary to atone for the sins of a man. The Bible describes Jesus as a lion, describes Jesus as a lamb. Both of those descriptions have something to say about who he is. Like a lion, Christ is a mighty ruler over us. There is no equal to him. Like a lamb, Jesus is a humble sacrifice, meek and mild. But Jesus wasn't in, incarnated as a physical lion. He wasn't brought to this earth as a physical lamb. He came as a man because mankind sinned against God. And a man needed to be sacrificed to wash away those sins. Jesus was born under the law. He entered into the covenant. And he entered in on our side. He was now responsible to live as Adam should have lived, faithfully, dependently, obediently. And Jesus fulfilled that and met each of those requirements completely. Not only was Jesus a man, he was a man perfectly but humanity was not the only requirement for a redeeming Savior. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fact that the Savior, this man Jesus Christ, had also to be God. 
Let us begin by settling into some working definitions. Last week I used some terms that perhaps you're not totally familiar with, or it's possible that you've never quite thought of them with the kind of precision that is required for an accurate discussion about the nature of God himself. And so we want to revisit some of those terms. First, let's talk about the idea of a nature. What is a nature? <laughs> One's nature is the dis distinct set of unchanging core characteristics that define the way that being exists. A set of distinct, unchanging core characteristics that define the way that a being exists. Now, in order to illustrate this, we're going to go from lesser examples to more complex examples, okay? Let's, let's ask, what is a cat's nature like? A cat is a simple creature, simple animal. What makes a cat unmistakably a cat? Now, there are some physical features that we associate with being a cat. Most cats have four legs, a tail, fur, and whiskers, but those are somewhat superficial, right? There are some cats that don't have that trait. Some cats walk around without a tail. There are three-legged cats. There are hairless cats. Awkward. So that isn't really the essence of what it means to be a cat. So let's think more basically. What is at the core of being a cat? A cat is an animal that survives wildly but can be domesticated. It is not a herd animal per se. It has some community tendencies, but it likes to be on its own terms. Hunter, yes, cats hunt, but they are not an alpha creature. They are not like lions. Um, they are agile and stealthy, secretive, playful, but lazy. They can't think abstractly. There are limits to their beings. They are not capable of complex communication like a human is. They are limited in their emotional cognition. If, you know, if you've got a cat, you know what I mean by that. Cats are not very compassionate, are they? Now, let's step it up a bit. That's kind of what a, a cat's nation, a nature is like. What makes a human being a human? What defines a man? Every human is a body-soul composition that represents a unique reflection of God's image. That's what it means to be a man. We are capable of some unique things. We can think in a very abstract way. We can feel deep emotions. We can experience and give love. Man, by definition, worships. He doesn't always worship God as he should. But all man, every woman, is worshiping something in the world. Man is inclined and designed to live in family. Man can exercise leadership over other creatures. Man remembers. Humans learn. Do you see how those traits are like the common denominator of all human beings? That we all share those things in common. So we've covered animals, we've considered humans, but when you get to the nature of God, you really have to be prepared to think. God's nature is holy, and you're probably familiar with what that word holy means. Holy means unique and set apart. That means there are not other things in the creation that are exactly like God. He is completely unique. So the nature of God is defined by characteristics that we cannot fully possess. When the Bible says that man is made in God's image, that doesn't mean that man possesses God's nature. Far be it from us to make such a claim. We are not just like God. He is holy and set apart from us. God is omniscient. He knows all things. By necessity, to be God, you have to have an awareness of everything that happens in the, in the, in the universe. <clears throat> God is omnipresent. To be God, you must be present in every location, at every point of time, always. There is nothing that exists outside of God. That is a unique trait to God alone. Nothing else that He has created is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. An omnipotent God is capable of doing all good things. There is nothing that He is too weak to do. He is immutable, meaning that He never changes which is vastly different than a cat or a human being. We are constantly changing and adjusting and adapting and growing and learning. But God is constantly what He is. God is loving to the utmost degree. He is just without flaw. He is utterly and always true. These are just a small sample of the characteristics that make God what is uniquely God. 
And we might want to note that these characteristics are either completely absent in man, thus God is holy and set apart and unique from us, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, or they are only present as an imperfect reflection of the characteristics of God when we look at man. So yes, we can love, but we don't love the way that God loves. We can tell the truth, but our truth is at best a partial sliver of the full picture of what is true. One other aspect of the nature of God which is so unique to him is that he exists as a trinity. The nature of man has one expression of that nature per being. In other words, I have a human nature, right? And that human nature is expressed through Nick Neves, through what I am. But I am not every human being. I am a very specific expression of that set of human characteristics that we share as human beings. I'm not like Tanya. I'm not totally like Steve. I am Nick. I am the Nick expression of human, or human nature. Uh, there's a lot of DNA in this front row that is common to me, right? I've got five sons right here. My five boys share a lot of characteristics and traits and tendencies with me, but they are not me. Every one of them is unique and has their own expression of the human nature. They are unique expressions of what it means to be a man. So we are not perfectly unified. We have different goals. We have different views of the world. And as much as I desire to shape them towards Christ, each one of them thinks differently about the world that they live in. Now, contrast that to God's nature. God's nature is unique in that it has three personal expressions of one and the same nature. God the Father is one of those expressions. God the Son is another. And God the Spirit is the third expression of that one nature. The three persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in will, in purpose, and in affection. So they all desire and care about the same things. They share the same nature perfectly. Not like me and my sons share a human nature. They, they share it in a very unique way. There is no way for them to be at odds with one another. They cannot be divided. There is no competition among the triune Godhead. Man's nature does not function exactly like this. Our nature is shared by billions of unique persons, but not unified in such a way that we can be thought of as one man. We are largely independent of one another, though every human shares the set of characteristics that make one exist as a human being, man is not perfectly united in its will, in its person, uh, purpose, or as in, in his affections. Now let's take what we've just spoken about regarding nature and person, and let's see how that applies uniquely in Christ Jesus. God the Son has always existed as one of three personal expressions of the nature of God. One of the defining characteristics of God is perfection. God is, by His very definition, absolutely complete and without flaw. So God the Son, who has always existed, did not need another nature. Jesus was not lacking anything and thought to himself, well, in order to be fully what I need to be, I've got to become a man. He lacked nothing. But for the sake of mankind, for our sake and benefit, for the sake of mankind who did have a drastic, glaring need, Jesus was willing to add to his divine nature another supplementary nature. This is what the doctrine of the hypostatic union explains for us. The person of the Son of God added a human nature to his divine nature. I like how uh, Professor Stephen Wellham says it. He serves at uh, Southern Seminary. He says, In Christ there is one person, the Son, who is the subject of two natures that subsist in both natures and acts through them. The person is the acting subject. Natures are not. Remember we said that natures are like a set of rules or conditions or characteristics. Yet what is true of each nature is true of the one person. This is known as communication of attributes. So let us be careful not to think about the incarnation 
as subtraction. Jesus didn't stop being God so that he could take on a human form and be a man like us. Jesus did not divest himself of any of those characteristics that are uniquely God's characteristics. Instead, he added a human nature to what already existed. And we're going to discuss this in even more detail next week when we examine the union of these two distinct natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. But for this week, think about that, how Christ becoming man was not a subtraction. It was an addition to what Christ has always been. It is safe to say that in our day and age, the divine nature of Jesus is more hotly debated than the human nature of Jesus. Last week, we proved the human nature of Christ. But this week, we're talking about his divinity. And I think there's two reasons why the divinity of, of, of Jesus is much more controversial today. First, Jesus has a human history. It was documented by dozens. It was attested to by hundreds. We can read the things that he said. We examine the testimonies of others who lived beside him and knew him personally. So it is not as difficult, it's not as much of a stretch to say that Christ was authentically a human being. The idea also, the second reason why I think it's, it's harder to en en envision Jesus being God is that the idea of a Jesus who is human but is not divine is far easier for the secular world that we live in to deal with. People who approach Christ without the Spirit can much more easily say, okay, I'll admit that there was a human Jesus who lived in history and who may have even had a great impact on the world that he lived in, but it is far more risky for them to consider the divinity of Christ. If Jesus was only human, if Jesus was simply a man who lived uh, 2,000 years ago, then Jesus would be nothing more than a peer to us, one of our peers. He would be like you and me, just a more accomplished version of what we can be and do. And that would relegate him to simply one voice among many on the shelf of interesting ideas and perspectives throughout history. Can you see why the world would be far less threatened to see Jesus just as a man, but not as God and man in one being? And so there have, throughout the time of Christ, been assaults on the divinity of Jesus. The earliest one that we have on record was called Ebionism. Ebionism was a second century heresy that cropped up that needed to be defended. It is mentioned by several of the, the early church fathers, including Irenaeus, one of my favorites. Ebionism denied that Jesus was eternally begotten Son of God. Ebionism suggested instead that Jesus was just a normal man like you or like me, but he was adopted by the Father in order to make him the Messiah. The Ebionism heresy, therefore, is that Jesus was a man but he was not God. Now this makes Jesus more like the superheroes that we see in the movies we watch today, or we would watch if the world was not shut down right now. Like us, superheroes walk the earth and have limits and characteristics, but when we watch these movies, we think of them as having some superhuman strength or some great ability that allow them to excel past other humans. And so the Ebionists' view of Jesus was that he was just a normal human being like you and like me, but better, but more powerful, that God had somehow given him strength to go beyond what a normal human can be. The Ebionites taught that this happened at his baptism when he received a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. And although Ebionism never really gained a whole lot of traction in the early church, we see repercussions of this kind of thinking in our society today. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a real being, but they teach that he is not God. They teach him as an exalted angel who took on human form. They refuse to believe that he is eternally the word of God. Uh, the cult Iglesia Ni Cristo, speaks of Jesus Christ as a man, born of the seed of Adam, who has, through obedience and faithfulness, been exalted to a level similar to that of a demigod, one who is not quite God, 
but has achieved so much and proved so much through his faithfulness that God has made room for him to be worshipped alongside the true God, which creates all kinds of problems with what Christ declares about himself throughout the Old and New Testaments, that he alone is worthy of worship, that he will not share his glory with another. But I think this heresy exists in a more widespread form than we even realize. So much redefining of God has happened in our society today that we have seen even churches that claim to be Orthodox Christian churches strip Jesus of his divinity by spending all their time talking simply about his humanity. They don't mention his authority over us. They don't mention his lordship. They don't mention that he is judge who will one day render all sin and death obsolete. They don't speak about how he confronts the wickedness of man. They simply speak of him as if he was a a really good neighbor, somebody who comes alongside us and gives us an example that we can choose to follow or not follow. This is in some sense a mild form of Ebionism because it fails to see the glory of Christ in his divinity, fails to exalt him to the extent that he deserves to be exalted. So to understand the nature of Jesus, we need to prove the deity of Christ, and we need to do that from Scripture. And we see it in various evidences that the Word contains. So let's examine a few this morning. There are more than what we can handle this morning, but I want to give us a solid confidence that this idea that Christ is, in fact, divine... It's not something that comes out of man's imagination, but rather it's something that God has revealed to us through his word. We see it first in the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit outside of the normal carnal means that a mere human being would normally be born into. Remember last week we spoke of Galatians 4, 4 through 5, where it said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Ebionites thought that Christ was adopted. They were wrong. We are the ones in Christ who are adopted into His family forever. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and He has always been begotten. He was not begotten in a manger. He has always been the begotten Son of God. We read about Mary and Joseph during the Christmas season, and we we think about the, the wild circumstances of their first son, how Jesus came into this world before Mary and Joseph had ever consummated their marriage. And we think about how that is really impossible. Today we do have things like in vitro fertilization. We have ways for a woman who has never lain with a man to become pregnant, but there was nothing like that in those days. And there was no other explanation for this child's birth except for him being one, divine, or two, a complete hoax. But we have every confidence because of the testimony of Scripture that Jesus was, in fact, put into the womb of his mother by the work of the Holy Spirit. God himself created this pregnancy. God himself brought Jesus into this world. We knew that that was necessary because in Genesis 3, the very hint of God's desire to redeem mankind through the means of his own work is revealed to us that from the seed of Eve, the head of the serpent would be crushed by the heel of her seed. That was pointing forward to this Jesus Christ who was born miraculously in a way that makes our science baffled. Our science has no explanation for it. And yet this is part of the uniqueness of Christ, that he was born without having an earthly father, having only an earthly mother. Secondly, we see proof and evidence of Christ's divinity and the fact that he displayed miraculous power. The miraculous power of God, not only working through him, but working from him. There is no denying the intrigue of what Christ accomplished when he walked this earth, especially in those three years of his earthly ministry. He was able to manipulate 
the elements of the material world. He turned water into wine. He took a couple of loaves of bread and a, and a few small fishes, and he fed thousands of people with this small lunch. Jesus was able to walk across the surface of water. It was not some optical illusion. It was not as so many of these uh, channels like the Discovery Channel or publications like National Geographic like to try to explain away, saying, well, perhaps there was a, a sandbar under the water, and so it looked as though Jesus was walking on the water, but he really wasn't. No, this was the divine power of God enabling Jesus to do what normal human beings cannot do. He even spoke to the storm and caused it to become calm. He, he raised a dead man from the grave and gave him new life, not one who had just previously choked on a piece of food. We're talking a Lazarus who had been in the grave for several days. To perform a miracle is not enough evidence to prove that someone is God. Obviously, we do not think of Moses as God. And Moses performed many miracles. Think of the power that, that God displayed in, in Moses in parting the Red Sea, in bringing the plagues upon Egypt, in turning a staff into a snake. Moses was regularly a frame for the beautiful artwork of Christ's mirac or God's miraculous power. But Jesus is more than just a better man. Jesus is truly unique. He is the only one like him. He is extremely set apart. And so as we see him perform miracles, we recognize that he was not just a conduit through which the Father worked, but he was God himself. The way that he performed his miracles appears and feels different than the way that Moses performed his miracles or Elijah performed his miracles. Though he was in constant prayer and communication with the Father, in fact, he says that he was in subjugation to the Father, there is a confidence by which Christ preaches and a confidence by which he performs his miracles. In none of the prophets do we get the impression that they could wield their powers as they wished. But as they were directed by the Father, they wielded their powers. And yet in Christ, we know that the power to do all things existed. This revealed the omnipotence of Christ that could only be true of the living God. I mentioned a second ago that the heresy of Ebionism wants us to think of Jesus not as God, but as some kind of superhero. If you really think about it, God would not make a very good superhero in the genre that we're talking about today or that we see in the movies. Why? Because superpowers make an individual more than a man, but they remain mortal and that's why you have a storyline, right? There is conflict. There is the possibility that Thor will not win. There is the possibility that Tony Stark's technology will fail him in the end. But Jesus is omnipotent. His divine nature means that no one will ever oppose him or stop his plan. It would not be as exciting of a movie to watch Jesus as a superhero because all he has to do is say it. And it happens. With a word, he calms the storm. There is no conflict. There is no opposition that can challenge him or threaten his will. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So all the demons that Jesus cast out all the blindness that was removed from those who could not see. All of these testify to the wonderful divinity of Jesus Christ. We have proof from the word of God that Jesus exhibited flawless wisdom, that he was not wise like others in the scripture had been before him, but that his wisdom exceeded even Solomon's wisdom. Elijah, Moses, Daniel... Each of these prophets had wielded God-like power in certain ways, in their ability to understand and to discern, in their abilities to manipulate the material world. But each of these mortals did so despite their own obvious weakness and flaws. Each of them were sinners. Daniel feared the future that was revealed to him. Solomon should have known better than to multiply wives for himself. Moses was prone to frustration and did not follow God's instructions to a T. All of them stumbled in their wisdom. Each were simply acting as instructed. They did not acknowledge or accomplish their miraculous feats according to their own will. 
Jesus was utterly wise, perfectly able, and righteously flawless. Even past miracle workers could not claim this. And now in fairness, Jesus did willingly submit himself to the leadership of the Father while he was in the flesh. He did so to teach us how human beings are to follow after Christ or after the Lord God, absolutely obeying his will and his ways, listening to his precepts and following them without question. But remember, while Jesus never did anything that was out of step with God the Father and God the Spirit, being very God himself, Jesus had the authority to act and the wisdom to do so without error. So John 10, verses 17 through 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so you see you have Christ here, able to even raise his own life from the dead, which brings us to our third proof. Though a man, Jesus was not beholden to the power of death like we are. Now in the last 10 months, we've been made bluntly aware of how much power the fear of death can have over humanity, haven't we? We cannot control death. No matter how many regulations we force on people, no matter how much medicine we take, no matter how much positive thinking we try to employ, we cannot overcome the constraints of death. And our fear of it has, in so many ways, drastic control over humanity. This to a lesser degree when we have faith in Christ. Because when we trust that Jesus is the one who has power over sin and over death, and we believe that God in heaven is the one who determines how long our lives last, and when we can rightly call him our Father whom we love and who we trust adores us and wants what is best for us, then we don't have to be so afraid of the last days of our lives. We don't have to be so distraught if God were to choose to cut the cord short in our existence. Because this life is not all there is. So Christians of all people should be mightier against the fear of death because we have the faith in Christ that reminds us that all of eternity and our life itself is in his hands. But Jesus was in complete control of his own life. He knew that he would battle death not as a consequence of personal sin because he never sinned, but as a way of putting our sin to rest. Nothing was going to stop his life before that was accomplished. And Jesus displayed his divinity in the resurrection. By rising up on the third day, he proved that even death had no hold upon him. Others had raised individuals from the dead. Elijah did it. But no one had raised from the dead themselves. And yet on the third day, Christ rose from the grave exactly as he even said that he would. So there are plenty of historical details that open our eyes to the divinity of God in Christ. But the evidence we seek doesn't have to be anecdotal. Jesus testified of his own divinity. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 10 this morning. Start by reading <clears throat> the first three verses for you. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, what does it mean to be the Christ? The Christ was the one ordained of God to bring salvation to Israel and reconciliation to the people of God back to the God that they had in so many ways offended and been separated from because of their sin. So Jesus was the one sent of Christ that had not been plainly proclaimed at this point, but evidences abounded. So the people are asking him, don't leave us in suspense anymore. Tell us plainly, if you are the Christ, let us know. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. If all that Jesus is saying is that he and the Father are unified in purpose, if all that Christ is trying to communicate here is that he and God the Father are on the same team, working towards the same goals, would the people of Israel here be in any way justified in picking up stones with which to literally put him to death? There was nothing sinful about saying that you were working with the Lord, that you were on his side. What kind of claim is Jesus making about himself here? He is claiming sameness with God. Look at those verses we just read again. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. Who has the right to give eternal life but God himself, the author of life? How can we not see this of Christ and think that Jesus was anything less then God himself, if he can give eternal life to another, he must be God. He goes on to say, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Whose hand are we in? We're in Christ's hand there. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Whose hand are we in? The son's, and at the same time, the father's. He says in verse 30, I and the Father am one. This is called divine equivocation. Because Christ can do what only God can do, we cannot see him as anything less than God in the flesh. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. The sin of blasphemy was not always a claim to Godhood. It could simply be an attack on the holiness of God. So if you claim to speak a word from God, but you were lying, you were not actually prophesying the true words of God, but you were saying they're God's word, that was blasphemy. If you were taking the name of God in vain and making it seem like a cheap thing, there was blasphemy involved with that. If you described God wrongly or painted a picture of him that was inaccurate, that was blasphemy. And that's why we're talking about the hypostatic union because we want as God's people to be able to describe him well and accurately to others. We don't want to paint the wrong picture of who Christ is. So we need to learn the details of his complex and unique being so that we can share that rightfully. So there were lots of different kinds of blasphemy. But here Jesus is very clearly making the greatest kind of blasphemous claim, one that is the epitome of blasphemy, if it is not true. And if it is not true and he says it, then he is indeed worthy of execution in the eyes of these Israelites. You being a man, they said, make yourself God. The Jews clearly understood what Jesus was claiming about himself. The difference is that Jesus actually was God. So these claims were in no way blasphemous. They were a declaration of reality. Jesus could put all of this debate to rest easily by clearing the air and spouting orthodoxy. Oh, no, 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 you're mistaken. Of course I'm not saying I'm God. That would be a violation of the first commandment. And it would have been if, if he was not really God. There is a theological argument that suggests that the paragraph following what we just read is Jesus explaining that he isn't God in the flesh. That's not what the following paragraph is about. Let me read it to you. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? This is a reference to Psalm 80, 82 verse 6, which is speaking to rulers and kings. In other words, that they have a sense of lordship over others. He says, isn't it said in Psalm 82, 6, that you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? In other words, those leaders had the title of Lord. So in some ways, people looked at them as if they had godlike powers. But he's saying, how much greater is the one who, who God consecrated to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Isn't he greater than those? And I'm showing you through my miraculous works, Jesus says, that I am he, that I am indeed the Christ. You asked me and I told you, but you won't listen. So that paragraph is not Jesus walking it back and saying, no, 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 I'm not Jesus or I'm not, the, I'm not God in the flesh. It's him declaring that he is greater than every king that's come before him because he is indeed God in the flesh. And so those Jews tried to put Jesus to death. If you've read through the book of John, you've seen they've already tried to do this once before, two chapters earlier. Why? Because he bore the name I am. He called himself after the title of his God. We are not told how in the passage, but Jesus escapes their grasp. We've seen in other passages of Scripture, particularly in the book of Luke, where a confrontation like this, Christ just walked right through them. Like they, there was no way they could physically hold him. Why? Because he is miraculously God, and you cannot stop God. But Jesus was really putting off what he knew one day would eventually come. One day he would voluntarily lay his life down for the sheep. This is the very same charge by which Jesus is executed at the hands of the high priests. Matthew 26 speaks about how they claimed he had blasphemed by saying he was from God. And Jesus, on trial, in the last moments that he spent on earth, did not defend himself, but received that accusation as true. Jesus testifies to himself, or testifies himself, that he is God in the flesh. Jesus is true God. And that is why he has authority to forgive our sins, friend. Matthew 9, 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. No one can forgive sin except for the Lord God himself. That is why he can rightfully say that all scripture is fulfilled in him. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that not one iota, not a dot, will pass from this law until all is accomplished. Only God can keep the law perfectly. And he did that with a human nature through Christ. That is why he can be worshipped and adored as only God should. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But there is another question this morning we have to answer before we leave. Why did the Savior have to be God? Why is it necessary for this sacrifice to be not only authentically human, but also authentically God? Let's quickly work through this before we conclude. The perfect mediator between God and man must be both God and man. Where a separation has occurred, something has to act as the bridge to bring together that which was formerly split apart. The bridge has to have free access to both things that are being connected. We might call this bridge a mediator. That's what the scripture calls Christ. A critical connection that creates a meaningful union between two things that were not otherwise joined. Man himself, man alone, could not do that. Because a connection to God would be from lesser to greater. It would be something that man could not attain to. He could not do it under his own power. There are limitations to man. While the atoning agent needed to be a man to offer human blood as a sacrifice, to serve as a good mediator, the Savior also had to be God as well. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the bridge connects to humanity. The bridge understands the heart of man, has seen everything that we've seen, has faced the temptations we've faced, and yet, unlike us, has not stumbled in any of them. 
In fact, not only is Jesus truly human, because he is not corrupted by sin, he is more human than you and I are. Do you realize that? Christ is true human, because humanity was made in the garden, Adam and Eve, without sin. That is the right state of human existence. And it is only by the corruption of sin that man has become wicked. When people say to err is human as if it is the definition of humanity to sin, that's not entirely true. To err is fallen human. But true humanity, the humanity that you will experience forever after your glorification if you've trusted in Christ, will be a greater humanity that you'll ever know here. And Christ was the perfect expression of that humanity on earth. Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The bridge reaches man. The bridge also reaches God. One perfect mediator, the God-man Jesus Christ. Another reason why this Savior had to be God. In order to pay our debt, the Savior had to have no debt of his own. He had to be completely free of obligation to God. Man did not make himself to exist. God made man. And that first man, Adam, served as a representative over all men who would come from him. Because that first and very important representative sinned and offended God, all who would follow in his pattern would inherit that failure. You can read about it in more detail in Romans 5. All men, therefore, were disqualified from the role of mediator by means of their personal debt inherited from Adam and confirmed in their sinful compliance. Now, if a man was to be offered, it would have to be a new man. But only God can bring about a new man through a new and better Adam, a representative who could uphold man's purpose by trusting the Spirit and honoring God's authority and role. 1 Corinthians 15.45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam refers to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the life-giving spirit who took on flesh and gave himself for us so that we might have new life in him. <clears throat> this new man descended from the Holy Spirit and not from the loins of Joseph would be completely free of sin, untainted by that original error that Adam had caused all of us to inherit. This cleanliness would qualify him for access to the Most High God, where he might advocate on our behalf, coming before the Lord without guilt, without shame, without reservation. Jesus can speak on our behalf, and he intercedes to this very day for us, advocating for us and bringing our prayers to the throne of God. Thirdly, the Savior had to represent a value that transcended the eye-for-eye eye equity that is described to us in Leviticus. When we read about true justice, and this is really the basis of law even today, that punishment should suit crime, right? And so in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, you can read it in chapter 24, it speaks about how if a man takes the life of another man in murder, then that human being's life should be taken. And a just sacrifice for a just sin. Not just sin, an equal you know what I'm saying, I think, all right? A perfect man, a human being like you or me, if, if it could possibly happen, if a man could be perfect, which we know it cannot, would in theory be sufficient to redeem the life of one other man. That would be equity under the law. Remember, when we sin against God, we are com committing an injustice to him. We owe a debt to him, a debt of life, because he is the one who gave us our existence. So to offend him by sinning and breaking his law, we owe him our everything, our existence. So if you could find a just man who was not God who could die, perhaps that just man could cover the sins of one man, even though that's all theoretical because there are no men like that. But Jesus, being perfect man and also God in the flesh, is infinitely more valuable and that is why he can offer to the Father a sacrifice which can atone not just for one other,
but for many sons, bringing them to glory, redeeming them so that God would have not just an individual man to love, but a nation of people, a family that he can call his own sons and daughters, abounding in grace. How many could the superior blood of Jesus atone for, you may wonder? As much as God is greater than man, <clears throat> his perfect blood would have sacrificed and, and sufficed for an infinite number of sins. That is why everything you've ever done wrong against God was covered and everything you could ever do was covered because the blood of Christ is that precious. Fourthly, the Savior was determined to do more <clears throat> than just erase sin and death. He had to give new life to man or we'd be in the exact same precarious maybe scenario that Adam and Eve found themselves in in the garden. You see, redemption consists of something greater than just forgiveness. It is not just the washing free of our crooked record. Not that forgiveness should be taken as a light or cheap gift. May it never be so. To be washed clean itself is a gift that we could never possibly merit. And that alone would be a gift to man that would earn God's unrivaled glory. But remember, God took on flesh to redeem us because of his love for his people. He could not simply put us back into the garden scenario. He needed to graduate us beyond that fragile state of not a sinner, but also not strong enough to resist temptations. And so blood had to be shed to wipe the slate clean, but Jesus takes it so much farther. As God, he imputes perfect righteousness into our hearts so that forever we might live beside him, free from sin. When you get to heaven... You're going to experience a joy that you've never known. But it's not just going to be a happy place. It's going to be a sin-free place. You will never again have the option to disappoint your God. You will not live for thousands and thousands of years wondering if one day you will fall. Because the ability and capacity for your sin to separate you from God will have once and forever been put to death. Jesus, more than a better man, is God in the flesh. Long before Jesus and countless times after him, there have been men and women throughout history who tried to convince the world that they themselves were gods. The pharaohs of Egypt made the claim. Many of the emperors of Rome declared to their people that they were in fact living deities. The leaders and heads of cults throughout the world would claim that they are incarnate godhood. The Eastern mysticism these days claims that we can all be gods. But do not be fooled, friends. There is only one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, our Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory, not only for what he has done, but for who he is. Bow with me as we pray. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that as we conclude with a song of praise to you that you would give us joy in the heart that we would recognize how wonderful you are, God, that we would not make you any iota smaller than what you really are. Help us to embrace the fact that you are greater than we can even totally comprehend. But let that not be an excuse for laziness, God, but instead let us seek after you with all of our strength, with all of our mind, our heart, our love. May it all be for you. I praise you, Jesus, because you are the God-man, the only one who could redeem us from the wretched state that we existed in, thanks to our own disobedience and to the inherited unrighteousness of Adam. But Father, you've overcome all of that, for you truly are greater. And so we pray this in your perfect name. Amen.